Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, December 30th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Donald Trump is removed from Maine's 2024 primary presidential ballot. Venezuela plans military drills after the UK sends a warship to Guyana. Tens of thousands of Palestinians flee central Gaza. Russia jails two protesters for anti-war poetry. Japan logs a complaint following South Korean military drills on disputed islands. The GOP House Freedom Caucus warns against bipartisan spending deals. X, formerly Twitter, loses a court bid to block California's content moderation law. Google settles a $5 billion consumer privacy lawsuit. Gypsy Rose Blanchard is released from prison early following her famous 2015 Missouri murder conviction. And a new U.S. report shows that the world population is still growing, but more slowly. In our top story, Trump has been removed from the main primary ballot. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Sky News, Washington Post, and New York Times. Former U.S. President Donald Trump suffered another setback to his 2024 presidential election bid on Thursday after Maine's chief election official removed him from the state's primary ballot, citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bars anyone who has, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding office. Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows ruled the Republican favorite ineligible due to his actions leading up to the January 6th U.S. Capitol riot in 2021. In her decision, Bellows, a Democrat, claimed that Trump attempted to delegitimize a Democratic election. The official has, however, paused her ruling to give Maine's superior court time to weigh in amid an unexpected appeal from Trump's team. On December 19th, Colorado disqualified Trump from its primary ballot, making it the first time in U.S. history that a presidential candidate was struck off the race for allegedly engaging in insurrection. On Wednesday, however, a Michigan court refused to hear a case to disqualify the former president for that state's ballot. A day before Bellow's ruling, Trump's attorneys had sought her removal from the case over allegations that she's biased against the former president. On social media, the Secretary of State had earlier called for Trump's impeachment for the riots. Hours after the main ruling, California Secretary of State Shirley Weber, also a Democrat, ruled in Trump's favor, deciding to keep him on the ballot. A Minnesota court, too, recently backed him. Well, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. We had those facts. We definitely have some narrative spins on this story. Let's start with the pro-Trump narrative from Fox News. Democrats are playing the system to choke democracy in the U.S. Their hatred for Donald Trump is blinding them to the consequences of such political manipulation as they attempt to paint Trump as an insurrectionist, despite him having not even been found guilty of such a crime. Maine's ruling has only ensured that the 2024 election race has become ever more toxic. Open democracy has an anti-Trump narrative. For all the victimhood Trump or his supporters will claim following Maine's decision, the fundamental fact is that Donald Trump weaponized his presidency to short-circuit America's most important democratic exercise. The consequences of his actions are now on display for the whole world, and he must not be allowed to return to the all-important position of president. And we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us time to time by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there is a 47% chance that Donald Trump will be elected president in 2024. Venezuela to hold military drills after the UK sends a warship to Guyana. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, The Guardian, La Prensa, France 24, and El Pais. 
Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro on Thursday ordered the country's armed forces to hold military drills involving 5,600 soldiers off the coast of Essequibo in response to the UK's decision to send a warship to neighboring Guyana. Maduro argued that the defensive exercises are being launched as the vessel's deployment was practically a military threat from London and violated the spirit of a recent agreement between Venezuela and Guyana to peacefully settle their territorial dispute over the oil-rich Essequibo region. Last week, the UK's defense ministry announced that it would deploy a patrol ship, HMS Trent, to Guyana, a British ally and former colony, as part of a series of engagements in the region during her Atlantic Patrol task deployment. Condemning the arrival of HMS Trent as a hostile provocation and a direct threat to peace, the Venezuelan government called on Guyana to take immediate measures to remove the vessel. Caracas also warned Georgetown to refrain from further involving military powers in the territorial dispute. On December 3rd, Caracas claimed that 95% of voters in a non-binding referendum had backed the country's decades-old territorial claim to the Guyana-governed Essequibo region. However, the Maduro government argues that the referendum isn't a pretext for an invasion or annexation of the territory. Later, Maduro and his Guyanese counterpart Mohamed Ifran Ali discussed the dispute in St. Vincent and the Grenadines and agreed to not make any threats or use force. Following the initial meeting, the parties decided to continue the dialogue and avoid any moves that could worsen bilateral tensions. Scott, thanks for presenting the facts. We do have some spins. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from El Pais. The Maduro regime knows very well that the deployment of the British warship is a routine measure and poses absolutely no military threat to Venezuela. Instead, Caracas is stoking tensions by blatantly seeking to annex Guyana's oil-rich Essequibo region, illegally. Maduro is prepared to politically instrumentalize the dispute with his South American neighbor to suspend the 2024 presidential elections if necessary. The U.S. eased sanctions against Venezuela in return for Maduro holding free and competitive elections in 2024, which the Venezuelan strongman could very well lose unless he declares a state of emergency beforehand. And Telesur brings us the establishment critical narrative. The British warship's deployment is a blatant military provocation coordinated with the U.S. and a shameless interference attempt to secure access to Essequibo's enormous oil and gas resources. It's also well known that Washington seeks to establish a military base in Essequibo as a bridgehead for its aggression against resource-rich Venezuela after failing to overthrow Maduro. By allowing the militarization of the situation, Guyana is jeopardizing the recent bilateral agreement to refrain from steps that could lead to new tensions. However, Venezuela is prepared to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity by military means if necessary. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will respond with military forces if Venezuela invades Guyana before 2030. What, what happens if, let, let's say you're in your backyard, Eric, and, and you're you know digging a garden, all of a sudden oil comes up. What's the protocol for that? Well, what would you do? I would move to Beverly Hills. I mean, oh, what would anyone else do? <laughs> I would get a cement pond. <laughs> Tens of thousands of Palestinians flee central Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Times of Israel, New York Times, and the Associated Press. Palestinians continued to flee central Gaza Friday as the Israeli military bombarded the area in preparation for its troops to move in on the ground. Tens of thousands of Palestinians from the already crowded central districts of Burej, Maghazi, and Nusiriyat fled to the south of the strip of Deir al-Bala, pitching makeshift tents. 
This comes as the Israeli military claimed that it had located and demolished a hideout apartment on the outskirts of Gaza City in the north of the Strip belonging to Hamas political leader Yahya Sinwar, along with a large tunnel system under it. The military said that it had uncovered many findings in the apartment that indicated Sinwar used it as a hideout, though no details were given. Meanwhile, the UN claimed that Israeli forces fired upon a convoy of armored vehicles in central Gaza on Thursday after it had delivered aid, with no injuries reported. The Gaza director of the UN Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, said the convoy had taken a route designated by Israel but was fired upon anyway. Israel didn't immediately comment. The conflict has reportedly killed 142 UNRWA employees since October 7th. In a Thursday statement, the Israeli military admitted to doing, quote, unintended harm to civilians in an airstrike on the Maghazi camp on December 24th that killed at least 106 people. Israeli spokesman Elon Levy said that the wrong munition was used in the strike, leading to a, quote, regrettable mistake. According to the Israeli news site Walla, Qatari mediators have informed Israel that Hamas, quote, agrees in principle to resume negotiations to exchange further hostages held in Gaza for a week-long truce in a deal the report claims could see 40 hostages, including women, the elderly, and the sick, released as well as some Palestinian prisoners. While one official described it as a positive development, another said no concrete offer has been put on the table. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 21,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thanks, Eric, for that update. We have a pro-establishment narrative from CNN. Though of course Israel has a right to dismantle Hamas's military capabilities, it must wage this war in a humane way. The amount of civilians being killed will only galvanize Palestinians against peace and push them into the arms of Hamas. A more thorough and surgical campaign is now needed to eliminate Hamas's leadership in Gaza as Israel is losing global support. The pro-Israel narrative comes from Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war... Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. It seems that the Biden administration wants to pressure Israel into a ceasefire, but Israel must push back against such short-sighted thinking. Israel is a sovereign country and has the right to defend itself from terrorism and pursue its own interests. Hamas's military capabilities must be eliminated so that the group can never launch a terrorist attack like October 7th again. And we have a pro-Palestine narrative. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable as it kills Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. Russian protesters are sent to prison for reciting anti-war poetry. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, The Associated Press, and BBC News. A Moscow court on Thursday sentenced two protesters to prison for reciting poetry against the Ukraine war and attending a protest in a city square. Artyom Karmadin, 33, was sentenced to seven years for reciting the poem, with Yegor Stoba, 23, given five and a half years for attending the protest. Both men were convicted of undermining national security and inciting hatred for their role in the September 2022 demonstration against Putin's mobilization of 300,000 reserve troops. During the protest, Kamardin read, Kill Me Militiaman. Kamardin's wife, Alexandra Popova, said police stormed their apartment the day after the protest, dragged me across the floor by my hair, and started super gluing stickers to my face and threatened to glue my mouth up. 
She also said she heard police beating Camarden in the other room. She and Camarden's lawyer also described allegations of sexual abuse. During the court hearing, Popova shouted, shame, after the sentence was announced, after which she was removed from the room by bailiffs. She spoke with journalists afterwards and was arrested alongside several others for holding an unauthorized rally outside the court building. Mayakovsky readings, named after Mayakovsky Square in Moscow, have been held periodically since 1958, where people would recite anti-Soviet Union poems around the statue of poet Vladimir Mayakovsky. The demonstrations were revived in 2009, but have been suspended since October 2022 due to a crackdown on dissent. According to the rights group OVD Info, 19,834 residents of Russia were arrested for opposing the war between February 2022 and October 2023. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Amnesty International gives us our first spin. It's an anti-Russian narrative. Russia, especially during the war, has continued to ignore the right to free expression and protest. Tens of thousands of street protesters have been detained, fined, or imprisoned due to their opposition to troop mobilization against Ukraine. Those not sent to jail are still branded as spies or traitors, thus ruining their public reputation and limiting their access to employment. The Russian people are against Putin's invasion, which is why he is dangerously resorting to criminalizing dissent. RT brings us the pro-Russian narrative. The West has no leg to stand on regarding freedom of expression. For example, the U.S. regime has used the exact same tactics against its political opponents regarding the January 6th Capitol protests. After left-wing activists friendly to Washington stormed federal buildings and injured officers, there were few legal consequences. But when hundreds of Trump fans waved flags at the Capitol, they were labeled domestic terrorists, kept in solitary confinement without trial, and physically abused by jail guards. U.S.-backed hegemony should not throw stones when it comes to freedom of expression. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative. They say there's a 0.1% chance that Russia will be removed from the UN Security Council by 2024. Japan protests South Korea military drills on disputed islands. Here are the facts as agreed upon by MSN, NHK, The Mainichi, The Print, Reuters, and Yonhap News Agency. Japan's foreign ministry is protesting the South Korean embassy in Tokyo and South Korea's foreign ministry over military drills practicing the defense of disputed islands. South Korea controls the islands, which it calls Dokdo, while Japan also claims authority over the islets, which it calls Takashima. A South Korean military source told the Yonhap News Agency Friday that it conducted its standard defense drill near the islands in mid-December. South Korea conducts island defense exercises twice every year near the disputed territories. Hiroyuki Namazu, director general of the Japanese Foreign Ministry's Asian and Oceanic Affairs Bureau, told the minister at South Korea's embassy in Tokyo that the drills were, quote, totally unacceptable and extremely regrettable. Namazu added that the islets are a core part of Japanese territory based on history and international law. The disputed islands lie between the two East Asian countries in the Sea of Japan, which South Korea refers to as the East Sea. Japan's history of colonial rule from 1910 to 1945 and disputes over the islands have contributed to tensions between Tokyo and Seoul. December's defense drills were the fourth under President Yoon suk Yul's administration, and they come as Tokyo and Seoul work to improve relations amid worries about China's growing strength. 
Since taking office in 2022, President Yoon has worked to increase diplomacy with Japan, and the two countries recently held high-level economic dialogue for the first time in eight years. Meanwhile, South Korea's defense minister issued an apology over military educational material that referred to the islands as disputed territory. On Thursday, President Yoon called for the immediate recall and correction of the publication. Thanks, Eric. Narrative A comes from Shiman. The Takashima Islands are and always have been part of Japan, and there is rich historical evidence dating back to the 1600s showing Japan's rightful claims. In addition to the robust history linking Japan to Takashima, international treaties clearly established Japan incorporated Takashima more than a century ago. Time and again, national and foreign entities have recognized Japan's rightful control of the islands, and there should be no debate about to whom the territories belong. The Docto Foundation has a narrative B for this story. While Japan claims that it has controlled the Docto Islands for centuries, the fact is that Tokyo has continuously rewritten history, making false claims about its connection to the islands. Japan defies international orders and only publicizes its own rulings on the issue. And it has used imperial might to push a false narrative and undermine Korea's rightful control of Docto. South Korea has every right to defend its land, and that includes Docto. And Japan must stop lying about the territory. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 74% chance that Japan's self-defense forces will have tested a Tomahawk missile by mid-2027. The GOP House Freedom Caucus calls for spending cuts ahead of January's deadline. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, Axios, The Washington Post, The Washington Times, CNN, and Fox News. Ahead of a potential January government shutdown, a statement released by the GOP House Freedom Caucus is urging Republican leadership to avoid making a spending deal with Democrats that is larger than the $1.59 trillion cap set by the Stopgap Fiscal Responsibility Act six months ago. After their return from holiday recess, Congress will only have nine days left to pass a spending bill and avert a January 19th shutdown. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, is likely to advocate for a year-long extension of current spending levels, facing resistance from conservative GOP members. While Johnson has promised not to exceed the $1.59 trillion cap, the Freedom Caucus's letter called America's debt growth unsustainable, calling for deeper spending cuts. After the January 19th deadline, Congress must also pass a larger batch of departmental funding bills by February 2nd. House Democrats have warned that the GOP would face pushback if they tried to force spending below the spending cap, with House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, saying such a move could cause a government shutdown. The Fiscal Responsibility Act included $69 billion in side-spending deals negotiated by former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, that have raised the ire of GOP deficit hawks. Under an act provision, all federal discretionary programs could face steep 7-10% to cuts if a year-long funding bill isn't passed by April 30th. Aside from the dispute over the $69 billion in emergency funding, the House is also sparring over aid for Ukraine, a border security deal, and the inclusion of conservative policy proposals and spending bills. On a bipartisan basis, the Senate has been more willing to spend a lot in emergency cash. Those were the facts. The first spin is a conservative narrative coming from Washington Examiner. Enough is enough. America can no longer afford to travel on this road to fiscal ruin, with many so-called Republicans willing to enable the obscene wastefulness of the Democrats. Mike Johnson has been stymieing conservatives in the House from taking bold action on issues, such as the fiscal crisis and Pentagon funding for abortion. 
If they're excluded from serious consideration, House GOP patriots will have no choice but to revolt against Johnson's appeasement agenda. And we have a Republican narrative from The Hill. While the House has been unable to pass as many bills as they usually do, Mike Johnson is still pursuing a fiscally responsible agenda, listening to the concerns of the Freedom Caucus. Crucially, Johnson is doing everything in his power to maintain unity in the GOP and quell discord, so the party is fit to face a bigger challenge, unseating the Democrats in 2024. The Freedom Caucus has legitimate concerns, but the larger focus within the GOP will unify around the year ahead. Democratic narrative comes from Daily Kos. America is experiencing political deja vu as the hardline Freedom Caucus once again threatens to hold the nation hostage if Congress refuses to capitulate to its radical agenda. Unsatisfied with unseating one speaker, the Freedom Caucus is already making threatening overtures towards the next if Mike Johnson doesn't decimate government spending, a move that would be disastrous for the country. There is no end to the GOP's dysfunction and self-destruction. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There is a 1% chance that the IMF approved debt service relief for the U.S. before the year 2025. The X suit fails to block a content moderation law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Bloomberg, Al Jazeera, and Silicon UK. U.S. District Judge William Shubb on Thursday issued an eight-page decision dismissing an attempt by the Elon Musk-owned X, formerly known as Twitter, to block a California state law requiring social media companies to disclose how they moderate content on their platforms. Law AB 587 was signed in 2022 by Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, who described the law as an opportunity to protect the public by making companies reveal their policies on content moderation and release data related to the enforcement of such policies. X, in September, sued the state, claiming the law forced companies to, quote, engage in speech against their will and removed constitutionally protected speech in violation of the First Amendment. Shubb called the law's disclosure requirements, quote, uncontroversial and not unduly burdensome with context of the First Amendment law. This decision comes as X continues to deal with losses in advertising revenue caused in part by Musk's decision to scale back content moderation on the platform after he purchased it. Advertisers known to have currently ended their relationship with the platform include Apple, Disney, IBM, and Lionsgate Entertainment. Thanks, Eric. We have left and right narrative spins on this story, starting with the left narrative from SFist. Nothing in this law would force Musk, the self-proclaimed free speech absolutist, to do anything unconstitutional. The law merely requires X to report to the state data on what type of content it has banned, removed, or otherwise moderated. Musk's decision to cut back on his content moderation staff isn't the state's problem, and he'll have to find a way to comply with the law. The right narrative comes from Daily Wire. This law is yet another move by those in government, in this case leftists from a blue state, to stifle freedom of expression, particularly speech they don't agree with or like. The law is so vague that social media platforms like X will have to block almost everything, and parody sites won't be able to operate. The state should stay out of the content moderation game and allow the global town square to continue to function unhindered. Google settles a $5 billion privacy lawsuit. Here are the facts on this story as agreed upon by the San Francisco Chronicle, Document Cloud, BBC News, and ABC of Australia. U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers has paused a scheduled class action trial against Google, alleging breaches of privacy law following the agreement of a preliminary statement. 
The suit, initially filed on June 2, 2020, accused Google of collecting and selling the private data of users in Chrome's private browsing or incognito mode, allegedly violating the Wiretap Act, the California Invasion of Privacy Act, and the Comprehensive Data Access and Fraud Act. Google had previously seen two motions to dismiss the case rejected by the Northern California District Court, one concerning the plaintiff's original five counts and a second in relation to two further charges later brought against the company. These two charges were breach of contract as well as violation of California's unfair competition law. The lawsuit had sought at least $5,000 in damages per user, totaling over $5 billion. The case had sought to represent millions of Google users who had been allegedly victims of privacy breaches since June 1, 2016. The proposed trial for the class action suit, which was set to begin on February 5, 2024, will no longer take place, pending approval by the district court of a formal settlement expected to be received by February 24, 2024. Google has denied the charges, while neither set of lawyers have so far publicly commented on the preliminary settlement. The news comes as Google also chose to settle an antitrust lawsuit this December concerning the Android App Store for $700 million. Scott, thanks for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Cyber News. The lawsuit has exposed Google's incognito mode as a massive problem. And while firm in their defense against the lawsuit's allegations, it's evident that the company's tool did not protect users as commonly expected. While big tech companies often treat such court cases as minor inconveniences, the truth concerning incognito should be a warning to all about how vulnerable personal data really is online. Narrative B comes from the Daily Bruin. Although evidence certainly points towards Google's business model often seeking to undermine the privacy of its users, the reality remains that the search engine is by far the most popular of its kind. No matter what information the public absorbs concerning Google's malpractice, the consumers continue to use its product without hesitation. Unless there is an e-revolution capable of destroying the current status quo of the big tech monopolies, products like Google Chrome will continue to reign supreme. InfoSecurity Magazine gives us Narrative C. Intentional privacy violations deserve to be punished. However, while the likes of Google have a responsibility to keep personal information as secure as possible, even the most successful big tech companies can't reasonably control and maintain the incomprehensible quantity of data that currently resides online. The safety of our online data will only truly be secured through further technological advancements rather than lawsuits focused upon commercial mistakes. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Google will implement a feature to explain targeted Google ads before 2026. There is a gross misunderstanding by everyone, including me, I don't know either, of what kind of data is being harvested, even just by Google specifically, and what they're doing with it, and then even how much it's worth. Scott, I'm going to have to have you repeat that. I was in incognito mode. Oh. (laughs) Gypsy Rose Blanchard has been released from prison early. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Hill, E! Entertainment Online, and NBC Chicago. Gypsy Rose Blanchard, 32, has been released three years early from her 10-year prison sentence for plotting with her boyfriend to kill her abusive mother, Dee Dee, in Missouri in 2015. Blanchard, who pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in 2016, faced a potential life sentence for first-degree murder, but struck a plea deal with prosecutors due to the abuse she had suffered. She had testified that Dee isolated her from the outside world, forced her to use a wheelchair, pushed her to endure needless medical treatments, and falsely told people that she was suffering multiple illnesses. Dee reportedly had Munchausen syndrome by proxy. 
a psychological disorder in which a parent or caretaker creates fake symptoms to make it look like their dependent is sick so as to receive sympathy. As a result of her falsifications, Dee and Blanchard reportedly received charitable donations, a trip to Disney World, and a home from Habitat for Humanity. Meanwhile, Nicholas Godajan, Blanchard's boyfriend, who prosecutors claim stabbed his partner's mother 17 times, is continuing to serve a life sentence. All right, Tyla brings us Narrative A. This early release illustrates that even the court understands Blanchard's unique circumstances. A prison sentence was not what she needed after spending her entire life being exploited by her troubled mother. Support at a psychiatric institution would have been far more appropriate for Blanchard than incarceration, as she will likely struggle to reintegrate into society following her mother's abuse. Narrative B comes from Court TV. No one doubts the severe trauma endured by Gypsy Rose Blanchard. But her role in her mother's death still had to be addressed by law enforcement and the justice system. Under Blanchard's instruction, her boyfriend traveled to Missouri to commit murder. It's unfair that while she can re-enter the world and start a new life, Godajan is languishing behind bars. Taking another life can never be justified, no matter the circumstances or motive. Our final story, the global population rose by 75 million in 2023, but the growth rate slowed. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Forbes, DW, and the U.S. Census. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the world population will reach 8,019,876,189 on January 1, 2024, which would be about a 1% increase of about 75 million people compared to the beginning of 2023. However, the report added that the global population will continue growing at a slower rate. This means that at the beginning of 2024, there will be an estimated 4.3 births and two deaths every second globally. In the U.S., it said the population rose at a rate of 0.53%, or 1.7 million people, to a total of 335.8 million people. While the slowest decade growth rate in the U.S. was 7.3% after the Great Depression, some estimate that at the current rate, the 2020s could become the country's slowest ever growth rate. While the U.S. fertility rate is expected to be one birth every Every nine seconds and one death every 9.5 seconds by next month, the net international migration to the country is projected to add one person to the population every 28.3 seconds. Combining births, deaths, and migration, the U.S. will grow by one person every 24.2 seconds. The census reported last month that the world population growth rate peaked in the 1960s and will continue declining. In November 2022, the agency said the world reached 8 billion people. 11 years after it reached 7 billion people. The Bureau now projects the world will reach 9 billion people 14 years from now and 10 billion another 16.4 years after that. This comes as, due to factors including the COVID pandemic, global life expectancy fell to 71 years in 2021. Thanks, Scott, for the facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Population Matters. The global population has rapidly increased for over half a century and will likely continue on this path if we don't take countermeasures. The world has too many people, as shown by a lack of equitably shared resources and the current rate of energy use damaging our ecosystem. A main contributor to this is the marginalization of women and girls who, if they were given reproductive autonomy, would decide to have fewer children. As we give more education, medicine, and wealth to those already on our planet, the data shows that the population will decrease to a more sustainable level. 
and the establishment critical narrative from Medium. Many have rightly praised contraception for its ability to give people control over when and how they build families. However, the moment was quickly taken over by problematic plutocrats like the Rockefeller, Ford, and Bill and Melinda Gates foundations to micromanage populations. The rate of growth has been declining for decades, so we should all question why these global elites continue to push this debunked idea. In fact, underpopulation in nations like Japan is a true demographic challenge that needs to be addressed. Our final nerd narrative from Metaculus says there's a 50% chance that the human population will peak at 10.1 billion before 2100. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, December 30th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. 